Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, August 27th, and this is the weekly market update. As usual, the disclaimer, nothing that you hear or see on this podcast or video is to be taken as investment advice. This is for informational purposes only. I am not a financial advisor. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Before we get started, I had a bad cold the last couple of days. I'm finally getting over it, but uh, if I'm clearing my throat or sound congested, I apologize. It's because of that uh, cold, so we'll do our best here. Uh, we wanted to get the video out uh, on Saturday, uh, as usual. Okay, let's get started. So the big news this week was the uh, announcement by the Japanese Prime Minister about basically the nuclear renaissance, if you will, in Japan. Um, they, you know, last month they made an announcement about bringing a couple more reactors on by the winter, but this is, this is a, basically a game changer. It's basically putting Japan back on a, uh, uh, a, a path to going back to its nuclear uh, industry uh, growth, if you will, or reinstatement. So the article uh, <clears throat> was behind a paywall, but here's a couple quotes. Japan is entering a new phase in its nuclear energy strategy with Prime Minister Fumio Kishida ordering Wednesday the development and construction of next generation nuclear power plants. Kishida's government aims to secure electric power in the medium to long term with a plan to restart up to 17 nuclear power plants beginning in the summer of 2023. In July, Kishida announced a plan to increase the number of activated nuclear reactors up to nine so they can help meet energy demand this coming winter. The plan envisions the midterm use of 10 reactors with the number increasing to 17 by next summer. So this is tremendous news. This is uh, basically uh, the validation of Rick Rule, who for many years has said that he felt at least that the uh, for, in order for the uranium bull market to really get going, we need to see Japan restart, which, uh, you know, basically short-circuited the, the nuclear uranium industry after Fukushima. So um, this looks like this is what's happening. This is a major, this is major news. Obviously, the uranium stocks took off this week on this news. Uh, re-energized a, uh, this is the catalyst I think that many were, or a catalyst that many were looking for and has finally taken place. Um, so yeah, we feel pretty good about this. A lot of people, uh, especially latecomers to the uranium space, were getting very discouraged. You know, uh, you don't see hardly anything in the uranium twittersphere anymore. And now, uh, you know, but for us that are patient, us that uh, believe, uh, understood what was happening longer term in the mid and long term, you know, we knew that this was eventually going to happen. You know, this is going to happen not only in Japan, but many other countries that uh, swore off nuclear because you don't have a choice. You don't have an option. Um, the people in the countries are not going to stand, like I said before, for a lower standard of living. I will get into that in a subsequent slides there's a new article coming out by mark mills at the manhattan institute which discusses some of these things and why i th think this is going to happen 
but uh, this is big news. Um, again, the uranium bull market still in effect, and uh, you know this is just this was this is a major catalyst. You know, we have the trickle of news about new plants or this, that, and the other, but this is something that really kickstarted things, and I think is going to bring interest back into the market, and not just retail, but I think institutionally, uh, the story now gets even more uh, exciting and gives a line of sight to uh, increased demand growth and price increases, which I think will attract institutional money to the market. So here was Geitzel. He's the CEO of Cameco. He was on BNN this week. Uh, he, he talked about this also. Uh, I'll put a link to the video that he was on. You can watch it. But he basically says, uh, company as busy as it's ever been, signing lots of contracts. Again, he reiterated in this video what he said before, that this is the best uranium market he's seen in his 40-year career. I guess many people could say, well, he's just talking in his book. You know, he's, in, he's the CEO of a uranium company. What do you expect him to say? But, uh, you know, uh, it is what it is. The results are, are showing that. So, uh, or facts on the ground are showing that. So you can either believe it or you don't have to believe it. But uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is, you know, big news. Uh, with this Japan thing and, you know, their business is increasing. They're signing contracts. As a matter of fact, he said in this, in this interview that Cameco had sent a team to Japan to meet with their customers. So uh, maybe that's an indication of more demand coming from Japan in the future. So here's, you know, like, you know typical of what we see every, every week or so, you know, every other week, uh, this little trickle of news, positive news. South Korea wins $2.25 billion order to build nuclear power plants in Egypt. Uh, they're going to be acting as a subcontractor for the Russian export arm of Ross Atom, uh, which is kind of interesting in the fact that I thought that Russia was under sanctions, but we won't get into that. But anyways, uh, build to help the uh, Korea hydro and nuclear power is going to help build four plants in Egypt. So four plants here, two plants there, another plant over there. And before you know it, uh, you know, the, like I said before, the supply demand, the demand continues to increase and uh, it's going to continue to increase because in a world of uh, energy security, uh, you're not going, this, the energy returned on energy invested in nuclear is so high that if you turn your back on it, then you are condemning your energy policy to, uh, you know, being unable to provide low cost, reliable power to your grid, which we're seeing in Europe currently, and it's not working out very well. So I thought this was interesting. I wanted to throw this in here. Obviously, it'll be a little controversial. People will see things how they want to see them. Um, I did see an article about this. Uh, it showed a picture of Emmanuel Mar Macron, who is the Prime Minister of France. Uh, he made this comment this week where he proclaims the end of abundance. You know, people need to get themselves ready for the lack of abundance in Europe, tighten their belts, because we have to sacrifice to defend freedom in Ukraine. Okay, well, I guess you can make that argument. People... A lot of some people believe that that they should do that that that's what this whole thing's about uh other people believe that other things are afoot not going to get into that but i think what's interesting is uh this comment that comes in the rest of the tweet 
which is what I agree with. The desperation is palpable as the realization that the West is imploding is irrefutable, even to delusional Western governments. So let's, we must blame Russia and then you will forgive us. So they've got themselves in this jackpot. They being the Western governments, they went forward with these policies to sanction Russia ostensibly to the idea was to um, cause economic damage to Russia, therefore causing uh, the people in Russia to rise up and overthrow the Russian government. And then that would lead to, you know, I don't know what they thought would happen after that, that Russia would get carved up or whatever. I don't know what their plan was. <clears throat> or government would be put in place in Russia that was more amenable to the liberal Western order. But we can see now that that didn't happen. It's not going to happen. And so the political class in Europe now has went so far down this road that, you know, it's like when I'm driving back to my house in South Texas, you have to drive across the King and Kennedy ranches. So you leave like the Corpus Christi metro area and there's like one there's like one highway that goes down to what we call the Rio Grande Valley. It's two lanes each way. And there's like one gas station there. Then right after that, there's a rest stop that the state has. And there's a sign right before that that says next service station, 60 miles. And so that's what's happened here, right? We've we've ran our get. We've you know when it didn't take into the account the fact that there's no plan B. And so when the Europeans decided to sanction, which I thought was an emotional response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, maybe they didn't take into account, I don't know, I wasn't there, but it seems like they didn't, they thought this would work. And they didn't take into account the contingency that there was a percentage, there wasn't a 0% chance that it was, wasn't going to work. There was a chance. So there's no game theory. It's just this will work because we thought of it and it must work because we feel that this is wrong. And, you know, whatever they were, it didn't work. As a matter of fact, the Russian economy did not implode. As a matter of fact, the current account deficit or surplus is at record highs in Russia, primarily because of their energy exports, which they have pivoted quite easily to other markets. And the only people suffering are the people in Europe. And so now we're going to put forth this thing that you have to endure. You have to endure this um, uh, sacrifices to defend freedom because the Ukrainians are fighting for all of us. Well, that's not exactly how I look at it. And I don't think that the populations in Europe are the same type of populations of the great generation that were willing to endure or the people in the West that were able to endure the sacrifices of like the people in World War II, that generation, the greatest generation, it was a different type of people that weren't weak. And I just don't see that happening. And so this is what it is. It's like deflect from our poor decision-making onto this boogeyman, this caricature we've created of called Vladimir Putin, which, you know, is stupid because there's a whole Russian government and bureaucracy around Mr. Putin. He's not just like this one guy that sits there and <coughs> makes all the decisions for the Russian Federation all the time. Yes, he is the leader, but it's like saying, you know, George W. Bush was solely responsible for, you know, 
the invasion of Iraq and all these things, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's not well thought out. It's lazy thinking. There's a whole class of people around that. So regardless, you know, they can, people, I think in some polls, even like in Germany, I saw a poll where more than 50% still blame Mr. Putin for all of this. I think that will go away as we see more um, deprivation take hold. You know, maybe things, the Europeans will become, you know, lucky and we won't have a cold winter. Maybe they'll find enough other supplies to, uh, you know, they are finding a lot of supply of LNG because they're paying record prices for it, which is playing havoc with a lot of developing countries like Pakistan that can't compete for these cargoes. And so, you know, the developing world's suffering. And so who do you think, you know, a lot of these southern countries and eastern countries are going to align with when they see what's happening? You know, hey, we can't get enough energy here because Europe is paying record high prices for this energy and, and pulling it into Europe and it's affecting us. So there's a lot of dynamics here and that trying to blame it on a cartoon character called Vladimir Putin isn't really going to work in my view. At some point, the political class in Europe is going to be held accountable. They're the ones that push these policies. They're the ones that fumbled the energy policy in Europe. They're the ones that put these sanctions in place. And we've already seen governments fall and more governments are going to fall. Okay. So we will see, but I agree with this. It is desperation at this point. And so uh, we will see if my bet is that most people don't want to endure deprivation when it's so easily fixed. It's not like we ran out of energy on the earth and we just have to accept this. This is self-inflicted. And people are going to realize that when they're sitting there with no job, with food costs high, and with energy costs high. What, is this going to go on forever? What's the plan? You know, you're not going to make it three, two or three or four years to build all these LNG facilities and redo the world's energy flows. The political class won't make it that far because people just won't put up with it. <clears throat> you may be initially be able to deflect, but there's nothing that the peasants can do to Vladimir Putin. They certainly can do something to these governments that they live under. Well, as long as they still have democratic elections. And so one of the things the governments are going to do is provide more stim stimulus, more stimmies, right? Um, we created the problem, the European governments, by not thinking through our energy policy and then wetting it to Russia and then putting sanctions on Russia, which backfired and boomeranged on us. And so what we're going to do now is because energy prices are out through the roof and we know that you don't like that as the electorate, as a constituents that vote for us, we're going to subsidize your energy use. So the problem is created by the politicians. We said this many, many times. The problem is created by the politi political class. It backfires. It doesn't go well. And then they create another policy to ostensibly fix the previous policy that they, bad policy that they created. And so you just go down this road of more nonsense on top of more nonsense. And so uh, what needs to happen, I've said before, is they need to find an off-ramp, get a deal with Russia, and get the energy turned back on. But you know what? We're so far down this now, and the, and the attitude in Russia has changed uh, with all the hate that's been generated from Europe. Uh, I think if you, when, when Ukraine finally does have a peace um, put on it by Russia, well, that's what's going to happen. There's not going to be a negotiated peace. 
Um, eventually, this uh, will end. Uh, the Russians will impose conditions on the Ukrainians. And then I don't think the Russians are going to be open to, you know, just going back to business as usual with Europe. Because I think they realized, you know, over the years, as they've tried to reach out to Europe, if they've tried to uh, integrate with Europe, that Europe doesn't want to integrate them. And now you see the full-blown uh, racism and hate from Europe towards Russia. That's been there an undercurrent for many, many years, in my opinion. And just look at the statements, you know, uh, banning travel for Russian citizens. What, what did the citizens of Russia do? You say, you know, the Europeans stay, say to their populations, the political class, that Russia is a dictatorship writ, writ by Vladimir Putin. So why are the Russian people going to be held to account? They can't go to chess matches. We're going to ban athletes. No more travel to the EU, this kind of stuff. But if it, you know, so what exactly, you know, is the, is the plan here? So regardless, getting off track here, but this thing's been botched, okay? It's been bungled. It's been bollocksed, okay, by the political class in Europe. They don't know what to do, okay? And they're not as, you know, Alexander Mercurius at the Duran says, these people have no off-ramp. These people have no reverse gear. So they're not going to back down and say, you know what, we were wrong. Let's have a reproachment. Let's get a let's get a peace deal. Let's stop the killing. Okay. Let's stop the the war. They're not going to do that. Okay. Because that's admitting that they were wrong. And political, the political class in every country, not just Europe, never admits it was wrong. Okay, because that means the end of your political career. And as I've said before, that politicians are not concerned with, you know making policies because they want to help their constituents. They're making policies to stay in power and to, uh, you know, appease those who keep them in power, which is the moneyed class. I mean, this is my view. And so this is what we're going to see, more stimmy. So demand doesn't, you know, the higher prices get subsidized by the government. And so there's no incentive to lower demand. You see what I'm saying? This is the problem. This is not deflationary. So I saw this chart. I wanted to throw it up here. This is the S&P. Uh, the yellow chart is the S&P during the 2008, basically 2006 to 2008, great financial crisis. And this white line is the current iteration of the S&P. And it's just uh, staggering to me uh, how closely it's following the previous, uh, that, that bear market. What I think is interesting is, is that um, we had this little echo rebound here recently over the last couple of months. You know, a lot of people thought that the Fed was pivoting or at least going to a neutral stance based on Jay Powell's uh, comments at the last, after the last Fed meeting. And now you saw what happened yesterday at the Jackson Hole speech where he basically said, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep raising rates, you know, we're going to, you know, Re saying that they're going to do something, you know, you got to be careful listening to what these people say. Just look at what they do. We know that when push comes to shove, they will, you know, at least they, you know, did in 2008, they reverse course very quickly. Uh, if you remember the pivot, the J-PAL pivot. I don't know if you remember that. But anyways, uh, it's interesting that this echo rebound here where a lot of people were getting bullish again, saying the bear market was over, has run right into the Fed uh, comments, which indicate, at least from what they say, 
that they're going to continue raising rates because, you know, the, the, the mindset, the perception now is changing from uh, a pause to back to Jay Powell wants to be um, Paul Volcker and crush inflation. We'll see. Uh, again, I will state emphatically, again, what my view is, is that the Fed will continue raising rates until something breaks and forces them to cut rates and reliquify. Now, recall that the QT operations are supposed to begin in earnest to the tune of $94 billion a month, I think, in quantitative tightening. Uh, we'll see uh, if that if that happens. Uh, they were supposed to already start, I think, at a lower rate, and it didn't really indicate like the balance sheet was shrinking to that point. But we'll see. Uh, again, we want to do we want to look at what they actually do, not what they say. And they say a lot of stuff, right? So right now they're still playing the Paul Volcker. We're going to crush inflation, yada yada yada. So we'll see. Um, again, the economic indicators are showing that we're in recession. I suspect that the recession will get worse as liquidity tightens. Uh, and at some point, something will break sufficient to force the Fed to reverse course. So we'll wait and see. But uh, I just thought this was uncanny how closely this resembled 2008. So that means that, you know, uh, we, we will be looking at a, you saw what happened on Friday. It looks like their summer rally is over uh, as it ran right into the brick wall of the, you know, hawkish Fed statements. So this is important. Uh, I'm a big fan of Mark Mills at the Manhattan Institute. Every time I mention his name or mention the Manhattan Institute, there's a cohort of people that come on and comment that the Manhattan Institute is a right-wing think tank, and so they discount what has said. I don't do that. I look at what the, what's being proposed and the argument being made by the person, and then I try to refute that argument, I, regardless if they are you know, right-wing, left-wing, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. I want to know, if, is the argument logical and factual based? You know, if you're going to make your investment decisions and your investments in life based on a political viewpoint that you have uh, solely on that and discount other arguments, um, I think you're going to have a hard time in life because uh, things are not, you know, necessarily, uh, people aren't wrong all the time. There's several people on the left that uh, I listen to that uh, I have common ground with. You know, I'm vehemently anti-war. I am not for this uh, U.S. hegemonic policies that we have around the world. I've never been for that. Uh, and many people on the left feel the same way. So I have common ground with them. Um, I am very, very against this in entrenched, ingrained political class that seems to do nothing but get into power, say the things necessary uh, to get into power, and then do absolutely nothing for the people uh, or try to solve any problems. Um, there's many on the left that feel the same way. Um, so there is common ground. Uh, do I have fundamental differences with economic policy and social policy with many on the left? Yes. Uh, but that doesn't mean where we can find common ground that we shouldn't do that. And so just shutting off the other side uh, seems ridiculous to me. So anyway, that's what happens a lot when you mar mention Mark Mills or the Manhattan Institute. But regardless, uh, I love his white papers that were on the Manhattan Institute. If you are inter interested in understanding why this energy transition will not work, uh, he's written a couple papers basically um, around this that are already on the Manhattan Institute webpage, sp specifically around 
how the lack of materials, the lack of the ability to get the sufficient materials to do what the political class is, is trying to do with this net zero push and all this, it doesn't matter what you want to happen. Uh, reality is not going to allow you to do it. So this is like a follow on information. Now I get a lot of these articles from subscribing to a mailing list from the Global Warming Policy Institute, I think it's called in the UK. That doesn't mean that they're, uh, you know, pushing a global warming agenda. They actually are showing articles of why it doesn't, you know, that they're, they're, they're refuting a lot of the stuff. So this is where this came from. So I don't have a link to the article, but supposedly another white paper of his is coming out. And this is some, some information from that. So that was a little long winded, but Anyways, why the energy transition will fail. Uh, this is from uh, Mills. One can begin with a reality that cannot be blinked away. Energy is needed for everything that is fabricated, fabricated, grown, operated, or moved. Digital devices and hardware, the most complex products ever produced at scale, require on average about 1,000 times more energy to fabricate, pound for pound, than the products that dominated the 20th century. He gives an example. It takes nearly as much energy to make one smartphone as it does one refrigerator, even though the latter weighs a thousand times more. So energy inputs, you know, we've talked about this before, right? It's right up here. Everything that is fabricated, grown, operated, or moved, you know, requires energy. And as we've gotten more complex, the energy inputs are higher for the products, even though the products are smaller. That's amazing that the, uh, it takes a thousand times more energy pound for pound to make a smartphone than a refrigerator. This is just tremendous information. The world produces nearly 10 times more smartphones a year than refrigerators. Thus, the global fabrication of smartphones now uses 15% as much energy as does the entire automotive industry, even though a car weighs 10,000 times more than a smartphone. The global cloud, society's newest and biggest infrastructure, uses twice as much electricity as the entire nation of Japan. <coughs> That's amazing. So the inference here, or the what you need to understand is as society becomes more complex, the energy inputs increase. And so we're running into a dichotomy here where we have Western political class telling us that our energy use needs to go down. Macron says that we need to get into, we need to come into this, uh, the era of abundance is over. And yet how many people that are in support of this political class or are indifferent to it understand energy inputs? This is the problem. See, many people, most people don't understand these facts. And so they just take it for granted, right? Because who, John, who's, who would be against, who would be against sustainability? Who would be against net net carbon zero, net zero carbon? Why are you against that? And then you know, as they're typing away on their smartphone to get their pictures that are kept in the cloud. I mean, people just don't know these things. It's that simple. Advocates of a carbon-free world underestimate not only how much energy the world already uses, but how much more energy the world yet will demand. In America, there are nearly as many vehicles as people. While in most of the world, fewer than one in 20 people have a car, more than 80% of the population has yet to take a single airplane flight. And so I would suggest to you that 
if you live in a developing country, you want your life to improve. You want, you see what people in the West have, you dream of these things, you dream of a better life. And we're talking about in many countries, like in Sub-Saharan Africa, we're talking about clean water, guys. We're talking about proper sanitation, basic infrastructure that hasn't even begun to be built yet. You know, forget about the cloud or a smartphone. We're talking about the basics, okay, that every human would like to have. And then you talk about some of these luxuries as people move up the, the, the ladder of prosperity. They're going to want a vehicle. They're going to want air conditioning. They're going to want to go on trips, okay? And so energy use is going to increase over time, not decrease. And so the view that or the idea that with increasing energy use, or demand that you're going to accommodate that with less dense sources of energy, the, the ideas don't mesh. This is the problem. People are confused. So I suggest to you what will happen, possibly, which you can look forward to, is a decrease in energy usage in the West forced upon you by government, while in the East, in the developing world, it will increase. So your standard of living will go down and other people's will go up. That's what will happen. And so you... You know, if I was young, I would be looking to emigrate to countries that have a rational view on this, because it's obvious to me that these people in the West, in the OECD countries, are going to, they're going to charge this hill, whether you like it or not. And so you can either, you know, uh, many people believe in it, okay? And, you know, I saw a video yesterday, as uh, going around Twitter, this uh, Extinction Rebellion outfit, they had their little vests on that were made from petroleum products. And uh, they went to a gas station in the UK and they had these hammers, mallets, and they had like uh, punches and they would go up to the gas pump and destroy the display for the gas pumps. And the guy was like from India that I guess maybe owned it or worked. He goes, what are you doing? Stop this, you know? Uh, and no one's arresting them. No one's doing anything. This is the West, you know? And, uh, you know, these people, this is this has a certain constituency where people actually believe they're sitting there. It's funny, the safety glasses they were wearing were made from plastic. Where do they think the plastic comes from? I mean, these people, I don't even want to, I don't even want to like bag on them anymore because it's like, you know, it's it's too easy. But we cannot, you know, this is why we don't let children make policy because the the the, the thing about energy, the thing about industrial policy, the, the thing about life in general is it's a trade-off. You have to make trade-offs in life. You know, if you choose to um, pursue your interests, that may lead you to a life that, you know, you have a lower pay. You know, maybe you're doing something, making wood carvings, and you enjoy doing that, but people don't want to buy them. You may be happy and fulfilled, but there's a trade-off that your economics will be lower. It's the same thing. If you want to constrict energy supply, uh, then you're going to have a lower standard of living. And so there's trade-offs. If you want to have a higher standard of living, then you're going to have to have more energy inputs. And then you're going to have to somehow deal with the um, consequences and the externalities of that. And they can be dealt with. And they are manageable. And things can be done in a manner that allows for economic growth, that allows for a high standard of living, and yet preserves the environment. But these radical uh, 
things that we're trying to do in the West, um, all, all they're going to do is allow more energy to be consumed in the East. And so your standard of living will go down and theirs will go up. That's all. It's not hard to uh, figure out. Civilization still depends on hydrocarbons for 84% of all energy, a mere two percentage points lower than two decades ago. Solar and wind technologies today supply barely 5% of global energy. Electric vehicles still offset <clears throat> less than 0.5% of world oil demand. So with all the electrical vehicles on the road, it's offset 500,000 barrels out of the 100 million barrels of daily demand. So I don't know. Uh, and we spent like some say somewhere in the neighborhood of $5 trillion already. So you can believe what you want, uh, but make sure that your facts are correct and that you're willing to pay the price. And I don't think that that's the price has been communicated fully to the uh, voters in the West, uh, because if I think if people actually understood what this, what net zero means, what sustainability means, at least from the perspective of the people pushing these policies, they would be aghast and they would not be in favor of them. So uh, lives will be put at risk. This is another article from the UK, I think the Independent. The government has been warned that lives will be put at risk unless it takes urgent action. The scale of the squeeze Britain's face on their incomes has been laid bare with the energy price cap confirmed to increase average bills by more than 80% in October. <clears throat> in forecasts predicting annual costs of 7,000 pounds by April. So the inference I get from this, and I don't know, maybe anybody that's in the UK can bring us up to speed, but it sounds like there's currently a price cap, but the price cap is going to get readjusted in October and it's going to increase energy prices by 80%. So uh, yeah, uh, we'll see what people think about that. Probably not, they won't be too excited about it, especially if they're told it's for democracy in Ukraine and freedom and sustainability and net zero uh, I don't think people are going to like it. Boris Johnson finally acknowledged on Friday that his successor as prime minister would plainly have to offer more cash. Again, more stimmies, more band-aids for bad policy. While the chancellor, Nadim Zahawi, told people to cut down on their energy consumption to reduce their bills and insisted he was working, quote, flat out, unquote, to develop support measures. The one thing that you don't hear is a reproachment and peace in Ukraine and a reproachment with Russia to get the gas turned back on. You don't hear that. There's going to give more stimulus. Again, these people have no reverse gear. They're not going to admit they were wrong. I've said this many times and I'll say it again. This isn't going to change until the people actually literally go in, grab these people by the nape of the neck and their trousers and throw them out of these institutions and put sensible people back in there. Do I see that happening? No, I mean, Boris is out and what? Who's going to go in next? Liz Truss? She's no different than Boris. There's no change there. This is another This is another person that is part of the establishment. Okay, and this isn't going to change a darn thing. Same thing here in the United States. You know, you're going to have this congressional election. Yes, you know, there'll be some people that are, you know, anti-establishment, but they're not of sufficient number to change anything. You're still going to have Mitch McConnell in the Senate. 
You know, you have to get rid of this person. Okay. And what, what exactly do the Republicans stand for? They're, they're going to botch this midterm. This is my prediction. You know, it looks like they're going to botch this. They have no policy. The policy of just sitting back and not saying anything uh, and not fighting against what the Democrats are doing. Okay. Uh, and sitting here and just saying, well, the red wave will just happen on its own. People, you have to put forward a plan that people want to vote for. Okay. And just think, well, Biden's so unpopular uh, that, you know, we'll get the, we'll get a red wave. You know, typically in these uh, elections where there's no president, presidential election, yes, the, the party out of power typically gains seats. But, you know, again, these people are not interested in changing anything. They are two, they're two bird, two wings of the same bird, two sides of the same coin. They're all part of the establishment. Okay. They don't care, you know, because it's a grift for them. You know, this Liz Cheney got thrown out. And the thing that fascinated me was that nobody asked her was, I have a question for you, Congressman Cheney. When you came into the Congress, you had a net worth of like, I don't know, I forget what her net worth was, like <clears throat> a couple million bucks or something like that. And it's 36 million now. So how did that happen? So what are these people mostly concerned with? And it's not just, it's all of them. It's basically, yeah, there's a few people here and there that, uh, you know, are kind of eccentrics that, uh, but for the most part, you know, you get into that atmosphere and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Same, it's the same in the UK, it's the same in Europe. So the, the peasants are going to have to go in and there's got to be a, like literally a revolution. I'm not calling for revolution. But that's literally how you get real change. It's not going to happen by just, well, we'll go to the polls and we'll elect so-and-so and then they'll, uh, you know, do what we want to do. And uh, that's not how things work. That's kind of naive. So here's uh, more of that, uh, what we were just talking about. Trillions spent and fossil fuel use will increase. After spending hundreds of billions of dollars on wind and solar, 82.3% of global consumption of primary energy is still fossil fuel. And it is going up in 2022. So you see right here, uh, you can't see the, I had to cut it off to get this on here, but uh, your renewables here is uh, this 6.7%. And so you see oil, natural gas, coal. Coal's actually growing. I put a uh, link to an article from the Wood McKenzie coal analyst on the uh, website. It was an interesting discussion. You know, coal growth is coal as as a fuel source is actually growing in the world now. Specifically, where in the developing world, and why we've talked about this before, uh, because of uh, it's easy to use, it's plentiful, it's easy to store, move these type of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, doing more of what hasn't worked isn't going to like fix the problem. I think there needs to be a big push for nuclear energy. Uh, when we talk about uh, primary usage of, um, you know, for electricity, but that's just part of the overall energy mix. And so, you know, you're not going to fly jet. We've been through this before. I don't even want to go down the road. So uh, it's not going to work. It's not working. And now people are feeling the repercussions of it. And uh, we'll see if the pain is sufficient to change people's views. I'm not convinced it is. I hope it is, but I'm not convinced it is. So this was, this was beautiful. You know, these big universities have these endowments, right? They're billions of dollars. And it's like, they're almost run like hedge funds. 
And I thought this was interesting. It says oil and gas investment to make University of Texas system endowment the largest among universities. This is hilarious. The University of Texas at Austin, just a couple of hours up the road from our headquarters, this was uh, um, Frank Holmes, his weekly Frank talk, which I'll put a link to. You should subscribe to it. It's very uh, good information he puts out every week. Uh, may soon unseat Harvard as the wealthiest school in the U.S. How has it managed to do this? Any word? Oil. At a time when <laughs> I have to laugh. At a time when large sovereign wealth funds are divesting from fossil fuels and ESG investing has gone mainstream, the University of Texas system has been the longtime owner and manager of 2.1 million acres of mineral-rich land scattered across West Texas that at least is out to as many as 250 producers, including ConocoPhillips. Thanks to oil, higher oil prices, the mineral rights to the land generate roughly $6 million per day to the UT system, according to Bloomberg. So I don't know. Uh, we'll see if they get infected with uh, the endowment board of directors divest themselves. But uh, I think they like people like money. And if you have 6 million bucks a day coming in, that's uh, what is that? roughly two two billion a year we'll see but i think it's hilarious uh it's kind of uh you know th this is another thing like you know the general investor and the institutions have not come back to energy investing or energy companies uh, even though they are outperforming the general stock market and i'm going to show you a couple charts now of what's going on i think that's going to happen eventually but it's going to take some time so here's oil and gas producers set to report highest ever cash flows of 1.4 trillion, highest cash flows ever for oil and gas. And so you can see the previous years going back to at least 2010. Again, this was off the Frank Talks uh, uh, website. And you can see you know, the various areas of the world, but suffice to say, you know, this is a big increase. And what are they doing with this cash flow, right? Um, they're not reinvesting it fully because why would you? We've been down that road before. We've talked about that before. And so debt paybacks and return to shareholders. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing energy stocks starting to outperform relative to broader equity market. Okay. We're seeing that. Why? That's what happens when you have this kind of cash flow. And so what I wanted to show here also was... Um, you have these decade-long periods of outperformance, relative outperformance, that go in these long decade-type uh, situations. We talked about it last week. I've talked about it in an email out to the free email list. Um, why? Because these commodity cycles are so long because the investment cycles and the length of them um, is a big reason why. And I think you know uh, we're, we're starting to see this outperformance. And I would suggest to you, I've, I have suggested that this decade uh, at least a decade, will be one of outperformance for energy. Um, and we're just getting started. At some point, uh, and there's going to be volatility, there's going to be, you know, uh, times where um, it levels out or you have pullbacks or whatever. Um, it's not a straight line, but you see, you know, if you have a long-term mindset, you can see what's, what's going to happen here or what I think is going to happen. So here's some more bad news, uh, more fertilizer plant shutdowns. Poland's top chemicals company stopping, stopped making some key fertilizer products because of record natural gas prices. As we've said before, natural gas is the primary feedstock 
for the production of urea and ammonia. Uh, these are, you know, these are components of fertilizers, nitrogen-based fertilizers. And uh, so as the price of gas and the availability of gas has, uh, prices went up and availabilities went down, uh, it's forcing these companies to shut down. So the European gas rallied to all-time high this week, triggering demand destruction across the region. Now fertilizer supply at risk. Um, I want to show this chart. Oh. Um, soaring gas prices hit Europe. Fertilizers, chemicals, this is hard to see on this. I will put a link to the tweet. You can expand the chart and see all of these chemical plants and fertilizer plants all over Europe that are shut down and the millions of tons of fertilizer production that has went into uh, layup. This is not good, folks. Uh, so these fertilizer plants exist for a certain reason, right? Because there is a demand uh, for the products that these people, that these plants make. And so if they're shut down because of the lack of availability of the feedstock, the demand for the products doesn't go away. So of course, this gives a advantage to places like in the US uh, that are able to produce uh, these things at a reasonable cost, but it's insufficient supply for the entire world. This is what we've talked about. And so this is going to have an effect. This is part of the, I guess, what Macron was talking about. Get used to, uh, you know, deprivation. Because if you don't have sufficient inputs, you know, our corporate large-scale, industrial-scale farming that we've got used to this is another thing we wedded ourselves to that's allowed the population of the world to get to 8 billion people and if you take these fertilizer plants offline i don't see how you get the necessary inputs into the soil to produce the su sufficient food basically your row crop grain crops soybeans corn wheat to feed the world so this to my mind is going to have an effect on food prices at some point so i guess get used to the deprivation um i don't know so uh, anyways, want to get back to this. Uh, again, another positive for the energy stocks, energy sector, dividend yield by S&P sector. Energy is currently the highest. Um, and we can expect that to uh, stay that way, at least unless energy prices collapse. You know, I guess I, I'm not going to play economist and say, you know, we're going to have a worldwide depression and things are going to collapse. I guess that's possible. It's not a 0% chance it would happen. Um, but I think that if you read the current Goring and Rosenzweig Q2 commodity, um, review, which they do paper every quarter, it's about 45 pages. They talk about times in history, other times in history where, because supply was constricted because lack of investment. And one of the times was actually during the great depression in the U S where commodities actually increased in price because, as we've talked about before, the supply was constricted. And so even though you would think in your mind that, well, if the economy goes down, commodity prices go down, they point out, now they don't say that's going to be the case this time, but they do point out that there are, there have been historical uh, points in the past, and not just once, but several times, where even though the economy has contracted, and you would think, well, that would force down commodity prices because demand would go down because supply was so constricted the prices didn't decline like people thought and in some cases actually went up so they suggest that we may be in one of those one of those times now and so you see like 
the all these economies around the world that are in recession, Europe, the US, China, and yet Brent is still at $100 a barrel. Natural gas prices in the US are over $9 an MCF. So something's happening here. I mean, I thought copper was going to decline more than it has. I think it's 370 a pound. That's still fairly high. And I see things, you know, news coming out this week that there's going to be further declines in production in Chile. Okay. And so unless you're really keeping up with these things, you get into this mindset where this first order thinking, well, economy goes down, therefore demand for commodities goes down, therefore price declines. That is one thing that can happen and has happened. And another thing that can happen and may be happening is that, again, supply is decreasing faster than demand. And prices may not decline as much as people think. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how far that this recession goes. We'll see if we actually, um, if people blink and reverse course and start reliquifying. I noticed, noticed that China came up with another stimulus plan this week. I think it's like over $2 trillion now in stimulus that's been announced. I don't know if it's in effect. It'll take time to actually do that. You know, there was also a video I saw of them destroying more recently built buildings. You know, the, the, I know that people think that the demise of China has been predicted many times. I think it's, you know, has a lot of problems, but it's such a large country. It's 1.4 billion people. There's so many things going on. It's hard for me to just say, you know, eventually I'm sure that they're going to have a problem. But is that going to be this year? Because it's been predicted for the last five years. So we'll see. But uh, energy, like we've said before, is the basis of our modern life. And restricting it is just going to cause costs to go up. So uh, there's been a lot of benefit towards the energy sector. You, you saw from the chart I showed with the cash flows. And then you see, you know, higher payouts to shareholders. It's just uh, how it is. All right. Uh, that's it for this week, guys. Uh, appreciate you watching. Uh, thank you for the um, your time here. I hope this was useful to you. Again, feel free to uh, engage in the comments in a constructive manner. And like I said, there was a guy last week. He, he didn't come with the receipts. And if you're not going to come with the receipts, you're going to be held to account. I'm going to, we're going to come at you. Um, don't, uh, if you make an assertion or if you make a point, then you have, when you're challenged on it, you have to respond. So keep that in mind uh, in the comments. And again, appreciate the corrections that were made or the clarifications that were needed. Uh, sometimes I make a statement, you know, I'm speaking extemporously here. So sometimes I don't get all the facts where I don't have any notes. I'm just going based on a general outline I have in my mind. And sometimes that leads to mistakes or lack of facts or clarifications that are needed. So feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to do that in the comments, in emails, whatever. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks.